the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, I trust that you had somewhat of a restful afternoon. I hope that you uh, got your fill to eat and uh, able to go to the park or or hang out or maybe take a dip in the pool or something. Um, Retreats are oftentimes for refreshment and also times to... Uh, forge bonds and to build uh, and to build rapport with one another. So I hope that you were able to take advantage of that. As we go into uh, the third out of the four messages for this weekend, I will say that this this one is probably the one that is hardest to apply. Um, Last night, we started with the foundation, the foundational mark of maturity, being a deep faith in God, right? This is a faith that is informed by scripture and fleshed out in everyday life. It's not a theoretical, abstract kind of faith. It's a faith that accomplishes things. It's a faith that shows up in how you talk, in how you act, in how you view things in your life. And then earlier this morning, we looked at having a humble dependence upon God. When we have an appropriately high view of God, and we combine it with an accurate view of ourselves, we recognize that we cannot help but depend on God. Because He is so great, and we are not. Because He is so worthy, and we are so unworthy. And tonight we're looking at a third mark of Christian maturity, and that is a forgiving heart. A forgiving heart. As uh, Roger and I have been talking about Grace Bay Area, and as, and, uh, as I've been able to meet some of you, I, I realize that really over the past few months, there's been an uptick in attendance. I mean, you, it, it just seemed like only recently that you guys moved over to the school and were meeting there, and now it just feels like it's getting a little tight. God has seen fit to bring more people. And it's not just that they fill the seats, it's that they also join and become members of the church. And God receives all the glory for that. But at the same time, it becomes, a more, ch- uh, uh, it becomes more challenging to get to know everyone, right? When the group is small, you really don't have to call out the new visitors because everybody knows who they are. But now, it's, you know, you're kind of sitting next to, oh, you've been here for a year? Oh, Okay, so I'm the new visitor, apparently. (laughs) It becomes challenging, right? And it is for this reason that retreats become a very important part of the church life. Because the person that you kind of, oh, I've seen that person around church. Well, if you spent the weekend together, if you perhaps you you had to be roommates or something, then all of a sudden, hey, there's a a shared uh, life experience with each other. and, And it's kind of like we can always have that friendship and be able to talk on that level. But as more and more people come to your church, we recognize that these obstacles do exist. How do you develop deeper friendships with people? You see, friendships are as varied as people. Some friendships revolve around a shared interest or a shared activity. Others are based on a shared sense of humor. And as you get to know one another and pursue deeper friendships in Christ, I warn you and I just let you know that there will inevitably be times when you hurt someone. Or when that person hurts you. When we hear someone say, hey, nobody's perfect, we all nod in agreement. As if to say, yes, the sky is blue. Yes, there's oxygen in the atmosphere. I mean, it's just, you know, patently obvious things. We nod our heads in agreement when somebody says nobody's perfect. We, we're all there. We all understand that. It's obvious. And yet, what's funny is that there are often times when we are surprised 
when imperfect people hurt us. Right? We are surprised when somebody says something off color or says something mildly offensive. And you're like, wow, I can't believe you said that to me. And this is church. Right? Of all the, th- of all the, of all the places for this to happen, it's church. You'd think that maybe, you know, here in the life of the church, everything would be uh, more peaceful and that people would be more sensitive and that people would be more understanding and that people would be, we mean like perfect? Uh, This is a community of the heaven bound, but we are not in heaven yet. And we are not going to be perfect until that day comes. And so in the meantime, between now and heaven, we still sin. And when we sin, obviously, first and foremost, it's an offense against the, our great God. But oftentimes our sin has have vertical consequences, horizontal consequences. When we sin, oftentimes we sin against people as well as sinning against God. So we really shouldn't be that surprised when imperfections, when imperfect people, when people who still deal with sin, sin against us. You should expect that at some point, one of your friends might sin against you. And how you handle that situation will determine the fate of your friendship. In church life, we must recognize that there are three words that form the backbone and foundation of every single relationship. Spoken from God, these three words make the difference between heaven and hell. Spoken between human beings, these three words can mend a broken friendship. And yet these are some of the hardest three words to say. I forgive you. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. And we'll look at what Jesus has to teach us about forgiveness this evening. Matthew 18 Verses 21 to 35. I'm going to read the whole passage for us and then we'll go through section by section. Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This passage paints for us a picture of a forgiving heart. And specifically, it gives us two qualities of divine forgiveness that we must imitate. Two qualities of divine forgiveness we must imitate. Now, before we get any further in the passage, we need to start with a working definition of forgiveness. 
Because we're going to say that word a lot, we ought to define it. And I'm taking this definition from Chris Bronze's book entitled Unpacking Forgiveness. In fact, I, I, it's, a, it's a highly recommended book from me. I, I think it really goes through the details and the nuances of forgiving people, of forgiving others. But the, his definition is this. It is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability... And to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. I'll read it a few more times, don't worry. I <laughs> know, it seems kind of wordy. You're like, really? I was thinking like three words? Okay. It is a commitment, a commitment by the offended. A commitment by the offended to do th- two things. Number one, to pardon graciously. The repentant from moral liability. That's the first thing. A commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability. And second, the second thing is, it is a commitment by the offended to be reconciled to that person. One more time. A commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Now I've kept things super simple for this evening. Okay, this message is not going to be that complicated. In fact, I I, I would dare say that most of my messages aren't complicated. I'm not trying to make it confusing. I'm trying to make it clear. The difficulty is not the text. The difficulty is applying the text. It's not, it's, the difficulty is not the text. Number one, two points. Your forgiveness must be frequent. Your forgiveness must be frequent. Look down with me at Matthew eighteen, twenty-one to 22. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Now at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's been teaching in Galilee. He's been addressing the topic of forgiveness. And so it's natural that Peter would come up asking for more information about forgiveness. And so first we have Peter's question. Now, I love Peter. I really do love him. Because he asks questions that I would want to ask, but I don't have the confidence to ask. Right? Whenever you went to school, it's like, hey, I got a question about what that teacher just said. I'm just too chicken to ask. So I'm usually the guy at the back of the auditorium just kind of scratching my head like, man, I'm hoping that somebody gets these, 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 these thoughts from me. Like, somebody ask this question. Somebody ask my question. And so the person at the front of the class who dares to ask the question and ask my question, I'm like, that's right. I owe you well, I'm not going to give you anything, but thank you. Like, this is, I'm so glad that you asked the question that I've been dying to ask, but I'm too chicken to raise. Peter was not like that, right? Peter was the guy who just asked the question straight up, even if it made him look foolish. I love the Apostle Peter. I love this disciple because he asks the questions that I'm afraid to ask. And so Peter asked Jesus a very down-to-earth question. He asked, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You see, I do believe that Peter wanted to follow Jesus' teaching. I, I believe he desperately wanted to obey Jesus. And his desire shows up all over Scripture through the questions that he asks. But not only did Peter ask this question, he poses the question, but he also offers a possible solution. He adds up to seven times. So, so, Jesus, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? He even offers like, well, I don't know, I'll just throw out a number. What do you think? Now, maybe to us, seven times sounds like a low number, right? Like seven? That's it? I mean, we're like not even past two hands here. Seven times? That's it? It sounds to us like a low number, but you need to understand that back in this time period, the rabbinical teaching said that if you wanted to be a God-fearing Jew, you only needed to forgive your brother three times. Three. 
And where did they get the three times? Back in Amos chapter 2, God is pronouncing judgment on nation after nation. He's like, to this nation, this is what you got going. This nation, this nation. And, and God, and, and this passage says that, you know, for this first, I'll, I'll let it go. Second, I'll let it go. Third, I'll let it go. But not for the fourth. And so theologians said, well, God seems like God's limiting, uh, you know, to three, three passes. So therefore, uh, we could just limit ourselves to three passes. So when Peter comes up to Jesus and, and, and he suggests seven times, it's not just an innocent question. It may have started as just a, an honest, genuine, authentic question. You know, how, how often you know, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? But the, the, the suggestion was actually a little bit, a little bit uh, tinged with pride. You can picture Peter maybe strutting up to pose this question. How often, Jesus... Up to seven times? As if somehow Jesus would kind of go, Wow, Peter, you are, oh, that's so impressive. You're so amazing. Seven times. How magnanimous of you. How gracious of you. Wow, look at this. My number one disciple. No, I mean, you know, I, I think Peter was kind of hoping that, oh, maybe Jesus is going to, you know, give me a good pat on the back or something. And chances are, <laughs> the other disciples would have been within an earshot of this conversation. And they probably would have gone, there goes Simon Peter again. Man, this guy, just, just, just bragging seven times. What kind of crazy number is that? Everybody knows it's three times and three no more. You know, no more than four. I'm sure that the disciples thought Peter was just kind of trying to show off. Seven is a super high number. If three was considered the maximum back then, well, three, seven is more than double that. I mean, how, 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 how forgiving are you trying to be? Now, if the disciples were surprised that Peter would be so bold as to suggest seven times, Jesus' real answer would rock their world. I'm sure they all expected Jesus to affirm the popular uh, theological view at that time and say, three is enough, Peter. You have heard it written. You have heard it said. Do you not know what it says in Amos? But instead, Matthew 18, verse 22 says, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now look, I'm a numbers guy. Uh, Before going to seminary, after I graduated from UCLA, I worked as a public accountant. So basically, I'm a number cruncher by nature. So the first thing that I get when Jesus says 70 times 7, I think 490, right? Like some sort of Pavlovian response. But that's not the point that Jesus is making here. He's not saying bust out the Excel spreadsheet, you know, go from A, double A, you know, just just go all the way through and just just set up a column, put a name and an an infraction date, and we'll just kind of keep tabs. And then once it hits 490, 491, and, you know, have it highlighted. Light the row red, and you're like, that's you're done, you're done now. This is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that you should forgive without limit, that your forgiveness must be frequent. Now, let's think about that a little bit. What's the significance of multiplying something by 70? And what would that have meant to Peter? First of all, we need to remember that Peter was only a fisherman. He wasn't some banker, he wasn't some money lender, he was a fisherman, he was a blue-collar working man. His hands were rough by all of the work that he had put in. And Jesus is basically telling Peter, take your number, which you probably already think is high. Take your number and multiply it by 70. You can imagine Peter trying to think about that. Seven was a lot. Times 70? That would have been a very large number. This was Jesus' way of telling Peter not to keep count of the number of times he has to forgive his brother. In other words, Peter's forgiveness should be unlimited. And the application for us is clear. Our forgiveness must be frequent. How is your forgiveness? Do you have a forgiving heart? Is your forgiveness frequent? Is it regular? Is it as often as you are sinned against? In a room like this, I am sure that there are people here who have been hurt. I mean, we all have. And maybe you have been betrayed. 
Maybe you have been stabbed in the back. You've been wounded so deeply that it may even hurt you to look in that person's general direction. It pains you to think about things related to that person. Maybe that person you work with. Maybe that person is someone you work with. Maybe it's a fellow classmate. Maybe it's a small group member. Maybe it's someone down the hall. Maybe it's a friend that you've fallen out, you've had a falling out with. Maybe it's someone you hang out with regularly. Maybe it was somebody back in the bay. Maybe it's someone from back in the day. Or it might even be someone in this room. And tonight, I want you to hear the question from this text. How is your forgiveness? You know, whenever I bring this message, people inevitably come up to me and they say, but they, would, they have their objections. And of course I hear them out. I'm not just going to say, but what? You know, I'm, I'm not going to be mean. I hear out the objections and here are some of the most popular ones. Number one, but this person keeps doing it. You know, we eventually reconcile and make up, but he keeps doing it to me. He wounds me and then I feel like as soon as I'm healed, he wounds me again. And yet, I would say, how many times have you heard a child say, Mommy and Daddy, I will not do that again. And how many times you still forgive them knowing that they're going to do it again. Are you keeping a record of wrongs? How many times has it been? You got to 491 yet? This is the equivalent of breaking out that Excel spreadsheet. And marking down another person's transgressions till it reaches past 490. Another objection I hear is, you know, but that person didn't ask for my forgiveness. And I understand that. It may be even the case that the person cannot ask for your forgiveness, having passed on from this life. Well, let's go back to the working definition of forgiveness, right? It is a commitment by the offended to pardon and to be reconciled to that person. And what that means is that you should stand ready to talk and reconcile if and when that other person wants to talk. It means that you ought to be praying for this person who has offended you. In fact, it might mean that you should approach that person directly and have a heart-to-heart conversation. It means that, hey, if this person wants to talk, I'm here and I'm ready and I'm willing to talk. And even more than that, it would say maybe I need to pursue this conversation. Maybe this person doesn't even know he's offended or hurt me or sinned against me. Third objection I hear is, but that person doesn't even look repentant. You know, here I am, there's a knife sticking out my back and the person's like, running around, you know, having friends, having, having fun and laughing, laughing and jumping and playing. And there's, you know, there's just a big knife sticking out my back. While it is true that forgiveness is for the repentant, I think it's dangerous for us to judge the thoughts and intents of another person's heart. Right? I mean, earlier today we talked about having a limited knowledge of people. And how God has an unlimited knowledge. His knowledge knows no bounds. There's no, uh, there's no limited jurisdiction for God. God knows everything about us. And He knows how we think. He knows what we think. He knows how we feel. And even though from the outside, you may look at that person and go, well, that person doesn't feel bad about anything. That may not be true. We are not knowledgeable enough And we are not qualified to judge the thoughts and intents of people's hearts. Will you make yourself out to be God? Will you pretend as if you know these things when God says that he alone knows these things? You must deal with your own heart and pursue a heart of forgiveness, a willingness, a commitment to pardon. So, two, 
two ways that we should imitate God's forgiveness. Number one, your forgiveness must be frequent. And number two, your forgiveness must be complete. Your forgiveness must be complete. After hearing 70 times 7 from Jesus, Peter and the other disciples would have probably been frozen and deathly silent. (laughs) They would have had to pick up their jaws off the floor. Thoughts that echo within their mind. You you mean Jesus, Jesus, wait a second. You mean I'm supposed to forgive without limit? I'm just supposed to forgive that frequently? And what they don't know is that Jesus has only opened the door. Opened the door into an operating room where he is about to perform open heart surgery on them through this parable and on us by extension. So let's look at the details of the first half of this parable. Verses 23 to 24. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. So part one is really this first slave, this first situation. Let's, let's look at it. First of all, let's, let's talk about this slave's debt. What would 10,000 talents mean to Peter and the disciples? What would the significance of that amount be? And again, as I was studying this passage, my accountant nature just kept asking, what's the fair market value? (laughs) Right? Adjusted for, you know, adjusted for inflation. But I would say that the fair market value of these 10,000 talents proved far beyond my abilities. First of all, a talent was used to refer to how much something weighed. The talent was the largest unit of weight typically used during Jesus' time. So here, you know the weight, but you don't know what the substance is, right? So, okay, it's like a ton. So this guy owned, uh, owed a ton. A ton of what? A ton of bricks? A ton of sand? A ton of silver? A ton of gold? Here, Jesus is probably referring to a talent of gold. Second, Jesus says 10,000 talents. And when someone said 10,000 talent, 10,000, when they used that number back in this time period, he was pretty much using the largest number he could think of. So Jesus is taking the largest unit of weight and combining it with the largest regularly used number of that time period. He's basically saying that this first slave owed a debt that would have been impossible to pay. A debt that he could have never repaid. So let me try to make this clear for all of us. The NASB has a margin note saying that one talent was worth 15 years of wages. And it's it's making the assumption that it's a talent of gold. But if you do the math, you've got 150,000 years worth of wages. Put another way, if you went off to college and you graduated on time and you worked until you retired... You'd have to work over 3,000 lifetimes to even approach this amount. The point is that the first slave owed an insurmountable debt. This was a debt that he could never even possibly repay. You know, this is like, uh, you know, when you talk to children and they went to this like large party and you ask the little child like, hey, so how many people are at the party? They, they tell you like a, like, like a bazillion This is the picture that Jesus is painting in the story. This first slave owed a bazillion dollars. And so what happens to the first slave? Look with me at verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So what happens to this first slave? First, the king sold all of his family into slavery. The king was obviously furious, and he commanded that the first slave and his family be sold. This was the idea of indentured servitude. In fact, this was fairly commonplace within the Roman Empire. When people were in dire financial straits, they could offer themselves as slaves temporarily in order to pay off some sort of large debt. It was indentured servitude. So the slave and his family would work, and all that they made 
as much as possible, all that they, would, that they made would go back to paying off this unimaginable, insurmountable debt. But the king didn't stop there. It's not just the family. The king also sells the possessions. It's an immediate liquidation of all property and all assets. The idea here is that the slave would have absolutely nothing. Not even his own life. Not even his own freedom. Everything this slave had would be owned by another. And so in response, look with me at the first slave's plea. Verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Being prostrate was an act of reverence. It was was an act of of humility. He's begging for all that he's worth. And he's asking, have patience with me. Wait longer for me. And then the third thing he says is, I will repay. And of course, I've just told you that it's the largest unit of weight with coupled, uh, assuming the most valuable metal at the time, coupled with the largest number that is typically used in common conversation. This was an insurmountable debt. So the idea that I will repay it, are you kidding me? Really? You're really saying that you're going to repay? I mean, this was a ridiculous statement. There's no way that this guy is going to be paying it back, at least not legally. I mean, who's he going to have to rob? What emperor is he going to have to rob to pay off this debt? So this is the first slave's plea. And in response to this plea, the Lord forgives. Verse 27. It says, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. This, the forgiveness of this debt was complete. Despite the fact that it was an astronomical debt. This is astounding grace manifested through lavish forgiveness. This is not some sort of debt reduction plan. This is not some sort of chapter 11. We'll just, you know, reorganize your debt. We're consolidated. We'll, we'll like reduce the amount. This is not, you know, not, not, not a chapter 11 reorg. This is debt forgiveness with no further consequences. It's it. It is done. You may act and live as if it never happened. And that's what this king did. He didn't adjust terms or extend payment period. This king completely forgave the debt. Now, it's interesting to stop for a moment and to think, how do debts get forgiven? How are debts forgiven? You know, the obligation and the money that was used, that was spent, doesn't just magically reappear, does it? How are debts forgiven? You don't just print out more money and recreate the wealth. Especially in this time. How does a debt get forgiven? Debts get forgiven because somebody loses. Because somebody chooses to lose. In a room with this many people, I am sure that we've got some here who are trying to think through faith. Perhaps they've been coming because their spouse or their friends or their children are coming here. And maybe you're still on the fence about Christianity or maybe you're just not 100% sure. And to you, I need to talk to you right now. There is a God. And we all owe Him a perfect life of obedience. Of course, nobody's perfect, and we've said that from the get-go. And everyone has failed to perfectly obey God. But God promises that one day there will be a reckoning. There will be a settling of accounts like this king did with the first slave. And if you have not put your faith and belief in Jesus' death on the cross for your sins, and if you have not turned over control and the keys basically to your life to Jesus, then you've got this 10,000 talents worth of debt. And your debt will be called. But if you believe in Jesus and give him control of your life, those 10,000 talents of disobedience will be erased. For those of you who have been forgiven this huge debt, 
This thought alone ought to be an endless source and a renewable source of gratitude. You need to remember that God has forgiven us and you should endeavor to live for Him with every ounce, with every fiber of your being. You need to wake up every morning and thank God for saving you. Let's look at part two, the second slave, verses 28 to 30. But that slave, the slave who had just been forgiven this astronomical debt, but that slave, verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave slave, fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now, you're going to notice some striking similarities here between the first slave, the first half, and the second half of this parable. It's like, as they would say, deja vu all over again. It's like the same situation with just a minor change in the roles. The amount was 100 denarii versus 10,000 talents. As opposed to 10,000 talents, which is just an astronomical, insurmountable, unimaginable debt, 100 denarii was about four months, four months of wages. And the reaction, the first slave's reaction, the king forgave the first slave, but the first slave did not pass that on. The first slave would not forgive the second slave. And in Matthew 18, verse 28, it says that the first slave was choking the second slave. And obviously, something had gone awry because they get summoned. And the first slave in particular has to answer for his actions. Verses 31 to 35. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The king rebuked the first slave for his lack of mercy. Shouldn't you have had mercy on the other slave like I had mercy on you? You had a huge debt. This guy has pennies on the dollar. You owed me big time. This guy owes you nothing by comparison. Verse 34 tells us that this Lord handed him, handed the first slave over to the torturers. And in those days, it was common practice to torture someone and to let word of that be spread so that others might have pity on the victim. And donate to the cause. Verse 35 closes with, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now what does this mean? Verse 35. Wait a second. I thought once saved, always saved. Were you saying you're saved, now you're not? You're in and you're not going to heaven, not going to heaven, going to heaven. No, no, going to hell. What, what, what does that mean? It does not mean that you won't go to heaven. If you are here today and you have entrusted your life to Jesus Christ, if you believe in his sacrificial death on the cross for your behalf, if you have turned genuinely in to live your life for him instead of living your life for yourself, then you are heaven bound. And Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But that doesn't mean that God 
will not adjust the quality of your fellowship with him. It means that you cannot know the forgiveness of God in terms of communion, fellowship, joy. It means that your relationship with God just won't feel right. You will also know his chastening because God will not fellowship with you in fullness when there's an outstanding sin. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines us like a father disciplines his child. I remember that as a child, sometimes I would do things that my father didn't like. You know, I disobeyed him and uh, my dad would find out. And I knew (laughs) uh, that I was in trouble. I knew that I had done something wrong. And it was as if there was this invisible barrier between him and me. I mean, we could be sitting in the car next to each other. Separated by less than two feet. But I felt like he was in another country. I felt distant from him. I felt unsure about whether I should even say, could we turn down the air conditioning? (laughs) I felt this barrier. I never stopped being my father's son. Never stopped. Never got disowned. But I knew that the quality was different. And that's part of God's disciplining process. Because if you don't forgive others when they sin against you, something will start to feel wrong. Like this dark cloud is following you around. And in a room this large, I, I, there's a good bet at least one of you is feeling this way right now. Perhaps you've been holding back forgiveness and it's been eating away at you. And that even now, as I speak about forgiveness, you have a mental image of this person's face in your mind. You've been withholding your forgiveness and instead bitterness has been growing inside of you and it's poisoning you. And even as we sit here, the damage continues to your life and your heart is growing colder. Jesus is teaching all of us that our forgiveness needs to be like his. It needs to be like our Heavenly Father. Your forgiveness needs to be complete. Of course, I'm sure there are objections to this idea of complete forgiveness. Not only that, wait, why does it have to be that frequent? But why does it need to be that complete and that thorough? You might be thinking, I can't possibly forgive this person. I mean, you just don't understand how much this person has hurt me. You don't know how deeply I've been hurt. Every time I think about it, I like relive it. I can't help but get angry and, and my face turns all red. And I start, I start shaking with anger and rage. You just don't know, John. And I'll be honest with you and say that I don't. I don't. I can't live your life. I can't somehow embrace your experiences or experience what you experience. I'm not you. You're you. I'm me. But God does. And God has experienced more hurt than anyone here. He sent his only son, Jesus, to die so that you might be forgiven. It it costs God his only son, to forgive because someone had to take a loss it will only cost you the bitterness that you hold so tightly I've heard someone describe withholding forgiveness as drinking poison and hoping the other person dies so true another objection I I hear is fine, fine I'll forgive but I'm never going to let that person hurt me again. I'm never going to let that person even approach a position 
where he or she could possibly, theoretically, hurt me again. And I ask you tonight, or this afternoon, if that is really what it means to forgive your brother from the heart. Forgiveness is not about forgetting. Forgiveness is about willing to be willing to start over. Forgiveness is not about forgetting. Forgiveness is about choosing to not remember. Choosing to not go back there and re-experience it and relive it. Choosing to interrupt your thoughts. That when you see somebody who has hurt you and then you've reconciled, you've forgiven this person, and you, know, you see that person and you start thinking back to how this person hurt you, that you say, no more. I have forgiven this person as God in Christ has forgiven me and I will stop thinking about that. I will stop going back to relive that and experience it. I'm going to stop the flashback because I have chosen to forgive and it's not that I will forget. Okay? It's not that I'm going to somehow like seek amnesia about a certain event in my life but I will choose not to remember and not to dwell on it. Because nothing good can come from that. Forgiveness is about starting over. Deep cuts take a long time to heal. And I acknowledge that. But will you start that healing process by forgiving that person now? By being committed to pardon graciously and to be reconciled to that person? Furthermore, remember the definition... Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to what? To pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. See, forgiveness still says that not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. If there has been a relationship-destroying event in your life, it will take time to rebuild that friendship. It is a natural consequence. If someone has uh, uh, abused your trust and taken from you and stolen things from your house, maybe the person shouldn't have a key anymore. Not all consequences are eliminated. Because it is about the commitment to starting over. And the commitment to pardon graciously. Studying the parable this morning, this uh, <clears throat> this afternoon, I trust that many of you have thought about people in your life. Maybe it's someone you need to forgive, or maybe it's someone you need to seek out to ask for forgiveness. And maybe it's even someone in this room. And I know that it's hard because these are really hard words to say. I forgive you, or the flip, will you forgive me? Talk about a a heart-wrenching kind of thing to say. Talk about a humbling phrase to speak. So let me give you a starting point for this process. Three, three steps. It's real simple. Number one, remember your sins. Remember your sins. And you know, when when people may call us for self-examination and remembering our sins, sometimes we just kind of gloss it. Oh yeah, I do this, I do this, I do that. You know, so what kind of sins do you commit? Oh, you know, stuff. You know, just kind of, you know, when so you ask somebody, hey, how old are you? You know, it's like stuff like that, right? And, and we, we, we don't want to get specific. But maybe, just maybe, it's helpful to get specific here. I had this thought. Write it out. And you really don't have to go far, very, very far back, you know. <laughs> maybe just 48 hours is enough. Because your hand will cramp. And I would say, do it by hand. It just it makes it that much more visceral, the experience. <laughs> do it by hand. Let your hand cramp. You know? Let your handwriting deteriorate to chicken scratch. Sharpen your pencil again. Get another pen out. Because it's just going to keep going. And then I want you to look at that list... And take that list, and number two, remember that God forgives your sins in Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. 
that as hard as it was for you to write them out, it was much harder for God to impart forgiveness by sending His one and only Son to die on the cross. And so you look at that list and you're like, oh man, that sickens me. And my hand is cramping like crazy. I don't remember the last time I wrote. Write. Just keep writing. And look at it and say, forgiven. Forgiven in Christ. Forgiven in Christ. Forgiven in Christ. Forgiven in Christ. Write forgiven next to each sin. Three steps. Remember your sins. Remember that God forgives your sins. And three, third, imitate God's forgiveness by forgiving others. And then look at your situation. Look at this, this impasse that, is, that has occurred between you and a fellow believer. And you know, I know it's hard. <laughs> I've been there. And sometimes number three is really hard. So I tell you, number three doesn't work. You're not ready for number three. Just go back to number one and do it again. Lengthen the list. Make it more specific. Nobody else has to see that list because God himself knows all of those things. And he knows about the stuff that you kind of gloss over too, even as you're writing it out. Go back and write longer. Write more. Fill pages upon page. Page after page. And remember, forgiven next to each one of them. And then go back and think about your situation. And you'll find that you very much resemble the slave with the 10,000 talents of debt. And again, you know, just to remind you, how do debts get forgiven? Debts get forgiven when someone agrees to take a loss. And so the debts that we all owed to God were taken by God as loss. The loss of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. How can we not forgive? How can we withhold that? We who have been forgiven so much, how is your forgiveness? Let me pray for us. Our dear Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we thank you for the reminder of your lavish grace and mercy and your abundant forgiveness. Help us to remember that this forgiveness was not costless to you. It may have been free to us, but it was costly to you. Help us, Lord, to remember that you choose to not remember our sins anymore. That Jesus has indeed paid it all. And help us then, Lord, turn from understanding that our sins have been forgiven, that you have been such a gracious, loving, and forgiving God, and then looking at our situation, whatever it may be, looking at this individual, whomever he or she may be, and Help us to imitate your forgiveness. For we know that that would please you. For we know that when we forgive, we are like you. Help us to to cultivate this kind of maturity. That we would be willing to forgive. For such you have done to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.